to the vent room where respiratory therapists can come and get a little inspiration. I'm your host, Dr. Tabitha Dragonberry. All right. Today, I'm excited because we have Natalie Napolitano. She is actually a registered respiratory therapist who focuses on research because her primary role is a research clinical specialist. Uh, Natalie, can you give me a little background of how long you've been in respiratory and, and where you've been to get where you are today? Sure. So I um, graduated with my bachelor's in respiratory in 2000. So almost 20 years now, I've been a a respiratory therapist. And um, right out of school, I went to work in a large trauma center right outside of Washington, D.C., in Nova Fairfax Hospital in Falls Church, Virginia, and was able to gain a lot of experience in everything pretty quickly. Um, it was over a thousand bed hospital, which was very top heavy in critical care beds that over 500 critical care beds did not include a 75 bed NICU in those numbers. Um, and was able to train in all specialties, um, that they offered within respiratory care. So they gave people a lot of flexibility to train in different areas, even though they had specialty teams because it was one department, they were not decentralized. So I was on the trauma team, worked in the trauma units, the medical, surgical, and neuro unit for the adults. Uh, They needed some people to work in pediatrics. So I trained over to the neonatal and pediatric ICU as well and then joined their transport team and also trained over into the cardiac ICU where all of the transplants came out, so all the lung and heart transplants. And over the course of my time there, had several roles, became a relief charge person, uh, then a team leader. I ran the asthma education program and a pulmonary disease educator program. So we started doing a lot more with COPD and tobacco cessation. was a night shift team leader for a while, which was probably my favorite role and started working a lot on the quality improvement projects and processes and protocol development, policy development. And then when I was getting my master's degree, became a manager over the pediatric team. That really had me dive more headfirst into protocols, development, pathway development, that multidisciplinary approach to quality improvement, and found very quickly that there is not a whole lot of evidence for what we do in neonatal and pediatric respiratory care, and specifically that respiratory therapists are the best ones to be be performing certain tasks or therapies or duties or assessments per se. So Um, that became a little bit of a frustration for me as we're trying to convince a team of physicians to change their practice from what we don't see is uh, theoretically appropriate um, and that we're not seeing any sort of therapeutic benefit from as we do it, but you have no evidence to help change their mind into the right direction. So that's what got me started thinking more about research and started to work with a couple different physicians on wanting to start some research projects at that hospital, but they were not a university-based hospital and not a research-based hospital. Uh, So there wasn't a whole lot of support from the administration to do that. Then the opportunity came at my current hospital, Philadelphia, at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where they were looking for somebody to concentrate on research and work with the physicians as they're doing research on our practice, but we were not as heavily involved in it because they didn't have somebody who really wanted or could concentrate on that. So I moved up to Philadelphia and kind of learned in the streets per se. I didn't have any formal training um, in research, 
outside of my master's degree, which was mostly outpatient public health-based program development and health policy. So it wasn't very heavy into the research methodology and statistical processes. So I found a couple of physician mentors and kind of just started teaching myself. And that's where I am now. I have a full-time research coordinator that works with me now and one therapist that works part-time clinical, part-time research that I'm able to fund through a grant and working on trying to expand the amount of uh, clinical respiratory therapists working with me, um, hopefully within the next year to add several more positions on so that we can expand what we do. Wow. I mean, that's an amazing story on that and how you kind of saw something that was lacking in the profession, went after it, even though the opportunities weren't where you were at, you decided to to look for those or maybe they just kind of came to you because people got to know you as a, as a researcher, right? Yeah. I mean, I think they, they got to know me as someone who's um, a little bit stubborn and <laughs> kind of figures out what needs to happen. You know, one of the things that I was in a fortunate position to be able to move for this opportunity to do what I wanted to do with my career. And not everyone's able to do that. So it makes it a little bit harder. Um, it would have been a much harder road to try to continue to build that where I was because there was a lot of opposition within the administration to spend monies on research. So I, I started getting a lot of connections. So early on, I was part of the Virginia Society for Respiratory Care and then was on several AARC committees. And those connections really helped professionally. And that's how People knew I, were, I was interested in wanting to do these things. And the, as you talk with people, as you benchmark and try to help each other with policies and procedures and practice when you're trying to change things at your hospitals through the national organization, you know, they see that you've built what you've been able to do in building things and that you have these frustrations and want to move forward. So when managers and directors are looking for the right people for things, they look for different qualities that they're looking for in that individual. And that's how they sometimes find them is, is through that networking. And I really believe that the reason I have this opportunity is because I was active in my national organizations, because otherwise I wouldn't have never met the director here and we wouldn't have discussed several topics. Um, I didn't know the position existed. She hadn't even posted it yet, but asked me if I would be interested in it and if it was something I wanted to do. So I think that's an important piece professionally. No, that sounds amazing. So what are the day-to-day responsibilities in a role such as this where you're primarily working on research? So the benefit of being within the respiratory department is um, I can float in and out of clinical, which is nice. I keep up all of my uh, credentialing within the hospital. I don't do scheduled shifts per se, Unless, you know, staffing's down, they really need help. I have a day where I can not do the things that are on my schedule and jump into staffing, which I like to do. (laughs) I don't like to be away from it too long, but that's where you get your ideas. Um, So if you think about daily and clinical practice, all the things that people have frustrations about or why we're doing what, those are all of your research ideas. And then you just build some studies around them. Where I am now is is kind of different from where I started as I was building. But today, um, for instance, I am responding to data queries for a publication so that they can finalize um, just doing some final edits on the manuscript um, for Respiratory Care Journal. I have data to pull together uh, to assist with one of our quality improvement projects in the NICU surrounding intubation safety. I have to finish moving my office because being a non-clinical leadership person, I get moved a lot. 
So I moved my office in August and I still haven't moved everything um, from my prior office. So I need to get that done today because that's a little outstanding and I've been a little inefficient by going back and forth to get things. I have a manufacturer coming to update some software on a prototype piece of equipment that we have that we're doing research on. And I'm helping to do some policy changes around how we care for our airways. So I have a meeting with our nursing education group. Uh, to get that going. And I have a meeting with one of our research interdisciplinary research groups, which is kind of a weekly touch base for an international study. And then I have a call to schedule delivery and education for a new prototype piece of equipment we're going to be doing research on. A good part of my day some days is spent meeting with people, unfortunately, like you heard. And sometimes I get free days uh, to write. Uh, there's a lot of writing involved, writing of research protocols, uh, to submit to IRB, writing of manuscripts and abstracts to get our the results of our data out there and present it to our groups internally so they can see the results of, of their support. And I do a lot of work with our industry partners to develop equipment that we need in, in our practice area, as well as to change that equipment. So sometimes they just need uh, engineering tweaks to make it work better. So I, I work a lot with the research and development folks at a, at a lot of the industry groups on testing prototype pieces of equipment. I have a bench lab here as well. And then we're currently enrolling, uh, screening and enrolling in two studies. So we'll be collecting data, uh, going to get consent, collecting data um, on patients in the ICUs and one in outpatient pulmonary and surgical clinics. So as the research coordinator, uh, and we actually, sh I share some coordinators with other people in different areas where we're doing joint studies. Um, they'll screen and then let us know when we have somebody to go consent and then schedule uh, to get the data collected. So it's a lot of moving parts for different pieces because as you're doing one study, you're planning for the next one because the legal process and the IRB process take a long time. So you have to be planning in advance for things. No, but it sounds similar in the sense to bedside care because you come into work and you don't know. I mean, you, you kind of have a plan, right? You have your schedule, but it's not, it doesn't sound as monotonous as people might think research would be. Oh, it's definitely not monotonous. I, I have multiple projects going on at one time and they're all different. I don't have a, I don't like, I, or I guess I should say I like variety. So, um, being within the respiratory therapy department and not under a physician division, which is where some respiratory therapists are doing research, I have the freedom to do uh, research in all areas. So I have one project in the NICU. I have one project in the PICU. I have one project that is an IRB right now that will be, I'll be screening ventilated patients in both units first. If you're under one division, you're kind of stuck in that ICU and that division, and it's harder to get cooperation from the rest of them. And then we're, and then we're doing one study screening an outpatient pulmonary clinic and surgical clinic for pulmonary hypoplasia patients. So it allows me to jump between multiple disease processes and, and age populations, which is nice. So I know you had said on like st bad staffing days, sometimes you'll get pulled back into staffing. But overall, is this kind of a nine to five job? No, it's more of an eight day a week, 27 hour job because um, I'm a team. I've been a team of one for a really long time. And now I'm a team of, of one and a half clinically. Um, and I try hard to make sure that the research coordinator and the, and the other people, the therapists are working with me doing research are maintaining their work-life balance. And, and it, a lot of times mine suffers and there's a lot of travel involved. So creating the research and working with the uh, industry partners means a lot of travel to present the research, to go to research collaborative meetings, and to travel to talk with the engineers. 
So for instance, this month in January, uh, I started screening for two studies right before Christmas in the intensive care unit, and which is pretty intensive. So as soon as uh, we're collecting data prior to intubation on patients, and a lot of those things are very fluid. So I could have a schedule to my day, but if we get a patient that consents, um, I'm in that room collecting data and nothing else happens that was on my schedule. Um, and then I still have to do all of those things. So they happen more towards the end of the day and I stay later. And then I was in London for four days over a weekend. I came back. I still needed to screen and consent there, you know, for, for the other days within the week. And then on Wednesday, I drove up to New York Tuesday night and did a pediatric brain rounds at a hospital on Wednesday and then came back. And the next day I was in the hospital screening. Um, and today, uh, here as well. And then next week, I spend two days going to Florida to meet with an engineering team for one of our industry partners on a product that we're working on developing together. And then I go to SCCM uh, to present some of our research and to do a talk towards in the beginning of February. So a lot of these conferences happen over weekends, which in a perfect world means I would have days off during the week, but I still have to get the research done. Um, and if I take those days off during the week, it's going to take much longer and then you get outside of your funding windows. Um, so when you have grants to get things done, you're on timelines. So you have to get them done. So for you, it, I mean, that sounds, it sounds hectic. It sounds exciting. It sounds, you know, that some days you're probably pulling your hair out, but I mean, for people that are interested in traveling and people who are interested in, in changing practice. Cause I know a lot of people say, you know, why are we doing this? Or I was talking to a physician and they wouldn't take that suggestion coming to them with evidence-based practice. It really makes a difference. And that's where you saw the, the whole is you were seeing things that were being done that weren't effective. And then you decided, you know what, Hey, let's go after it. We need to get involved in the research. Cause if respiratory therapists aren't directly involved, we are not going to be advancing our practices as much as we should be. What does it go into or what goes into getting funding for research? Exactly. Um, and a lot of times the doctors end up hiring uh, research assistants that are nurses or uh, research coordinators or people to go collect data because a nurse can do some of the things that we do. They don't have the same knowledge base, so they don't collect it with the same amount of accuracy or they don't understand. So a lot of times when I'm reading the protocols before the the docs put them in, um, when it's a ventilation type study, there's small nuances to the different uh, ventilation modes that we know really well that how they write the protocol is going to make a big difference in their data analysis in the end. So it can help to make it better. And then every chance I get, I make sure respiratory therapist is the one doing the things they should be doing. So, you know, if there were more of us in research and we had more funding for research, I could have more of a nine to five job and do those pieces. But because it's new and there aren't enough of us out there doing it, kind of it, it's still uh, an unpaved path for us. So it takes a lot more work to get there. It's a lot of relationships. So some things I do that are industry funded. And so having those relationships with the industry partners and which ones are, you know, that are good to work with and which ones aren't, who has unrestricted grants that you can do for things. It's a lot of grant writing. I have a couple grants that we submitted, you know, the end of last year that we're waiting on and working with the different with physicians in the different divisions. So I started out with slowly trickling in some funding because I was added to their grants as their primary people and their, and their clinical experts to help out with the studies. Um, and then I was slowly able to, because I'm so funded, I can bring other people on. The challenge is when you start being able to try to fund other people if they don't have the experience. 
because when you're getting the grants, they want to know that it's somebody who has a proven track record and who is published and can follow through on things. So it's difficult if you haven't been published and you're starting out to get your name in there and get grants on your own. Definitely. But it's even hard to be that added on clinical expert with someone else's grants if you don't have a track record. So you almost have to build up your your publication base and, and your work base so that they know that you've worked on things and have successfully come to a conclusion, whatever the conclusion is, but you followed through and finished a study from beginning to end to publication. Um, Because when they're giving their money to people, they want to know they're giving it to an individual as well as an institution that's going to do good work and do good independent work. Getting the money and getting a grant is only part of it. Each hospital has their own process. Working with our legal and finance team and contract team can be so aggravating um, because they keep changing the portals and the processes and they want stuff put into this format or that format. And the majority of their formats are for large um, sponsored trials that come with an already made protocol and money attached to it that we're an added center onto something because we do a lot of those trials and they fund a lot of our research infrastructure. But a majority of what I do are small pilot investigator initiated trials, even with the physicians, because we don't have any pilot data even to build a larger trial within our field. Take, for instance, pediatric non-invasive ventilation. You can't point to one article in the literature that tells you the incidence rate of how often we use non-invasive ventilation in pediatrics and on which disease processes and what our success and failure rates are. And that's fundamental basic data that you need in order to build your statistical analysis off of for a study. So I'm doing a lot of ground building um, within pediatrics for some of these things it's because you need you need that incidence data to even move forward. No, it definitely sounds interesting. For someone who might be interested in taking the path that you've taken into research and being that catalyst for change in our profession, is there any special education, credentials, experience that they can start working towards or looking to get so that they could make their way into this type of role? Yeah. So you're definitely going to need to be educated and credentialed as high as you can for the specialty of which you're in, because that's what funders and that's what people looking for partners look for. They're they're looking for those who are the overachievers that'll get the work done when it's outside of their nine to five window. This isn't to set, I work for eight hours, I get my job done because you have deadlines you have to work on especially when you're doing clinical research, things happen at different times. You may only have families that come in on weekends and that's when you can come in and consent them. So you need flexibility and you need to figure out how flexibility can work into your life for that. It doesn't mean you can't have a life. It just means flexibility. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know another way to say that. Um, but you should have an RRT. If you're working in neonatal and pediatrics, you should have your MPS. If you're working and adult critical care, you should have your ACCS because they're looking that the credential is a benchmark. Um, that is the, the minimum requirement for that specialty that you know that baseline of, of education and information. Um, they're going to look for somebody who can function independently and who knows how to read literature and how to synthesize it and who can have a conversation about it because you need to be able to do all of that within writing your protocols, your manuscripts, and even developing the education for all the people that are going to be Um, interfacing with the patients that you're trying to enroll. And it's being able to do that at multiple reading levels because your consent forms, generally they went down to a seventh grade reading level. But what you're submitting in your grant application is going to be more of a higher post, you know, undergraduate level. Um, And getting that experience 
in most cases within our profession comes with a master's degree. We don't we don't teach anything about research and associates and bachelor's degree programs. It's not in the coarc credentialing mandate. Some programs do, some programs don't. But universally, when people are looking to hire somebody in a research position, they want a master's degree because they know at a master's level, you get that baseline and everybody has that. So you're definitely going to need to have a master's degree. And if you want to go into research, it's important what type of master's degree you get. You want something that's going to give you a good scientific base. So a master's in in leadership or education, which helps you go into educational research and how to teach and how to develop curriculum versus how to discipline people without making them cry and how to pull uh, multidisciplinary groups together can be somewhat helpful, but it doesn't always give you, depending on the program, a good base in scientific research. An administrative degree is going to help you on all the administrative tax for healthcare administration or an MBA. You want to look towards a degree that's going to help you scientifically, a master's in science, something of that nature that's going to give you that statistical basis um, and help you with the methodology pieces. No, definitely sounds interesting. And, you know, I know there's always that discussion on why get advanced degrees. And if you're going into this type of role, you're going to be working and trying to get the money from people with advanced degrees. So they expect you to be on their level. Absolutely. They do expect uh, a, a certain level. And for instance, if you want to be a researcher that can get federal funding from NIH, NICHD, AHRQ, PCORI, um, if you're not a physician, you have to have a PhD. That's their baseline requirement. They don't care what your experience is. They don't care about how good you are as a clinician. You can't even get past the demographics part of that application unless you have an MD or a PhD. Interesting. So what's your favorite part about being a researcher? I like finding the answers to questions. I like the investigative part. I like knowing that here is a practice that we continue to do that we have no idea if it's good or bad. And by collecting data, we can help change a practice and and streamline our care to be more efficient and effective. It's it's helping people. It's helping uh, the practitioners and it's also helping the students and the patients because we need to continuously look. There's a lot of things in the history of medicine that we did that we now know was not helpful and in some cases harmful. If we don't keep looking, we won't know how to do it better. So it's continuously improving, but it's, it's like an investigation. And then what's the opposite, the biggest challenge? Uh, the biggest challenge is the administrative process. It's getting the funding and it's getting through legal. Well, you know, hospital politics. <laughs> um, all the contracts and IRB, it's all the stuff that's necessary to protect you and the institution and the patients. Um, and you have to keep reminding yourself of that. But the processes take a long time. Um, so none of this is quick. And um, the frustrating piece with some of that is they cater to the people that bring in the most amount of money and that have been doing the research for the longest time. So as an example, I have been trying to get statistical software that I can use on my work computer for several years. But there's a policy that somebody wrote at some point in time at CHOP that says you have to be a physician or working in the research center to get statistical software because it's expensive, even though I can pay for it out of my research budget. Um, but I'm not a physician and I don't work for the research center. I work for the clinical center. So it's those little things that I'm still trying to work through the political processes to get to the person that wrote that uh, policy and make it important enough to them to change it. So I carry an extra computer that's my personal computer that has statistical software on it. That I got through a different method so that I can do my job, but I can't do it te technically. 
I was told I can't do it at work or on my work devices. <laughs> Good luck on that one. Yes. So, but you know, sometimes you just, you, you find the gray zone and you dance around in there and that's how you get things done. Well, I mean, I totally understand that. And sometimes that's, you live in the gray versus in the black and white. For students that are out there, because I know we do have a little bit of a student following, what advice do you have for a new professional or student in the field? My advice would be uh, to remember that medicine for every um, and healthcare for every discipline is lifelong learning. And what you thought you knew and what you th- thought were the right, was the right answer when you took your exam is going to continuously change and to be open to that. Policies are going to change. Um, practice is going to change. Uh, learn how if you don't know how. And if you do, continue to read the literature and be up to date with what's happening so that you can help to be that change agent within, within your hospital. Um, and it doesn't have to be at that level as that's daunting, but you can start with one patient. You can start with that patient that, you know, needs a better airway clearance option and the doctors are stuck on ordering chest PT because that's what they always did. And you can bring them evidence from um, Little Rock, Arkansas, their children's hospital that has a fantastic airway clearance protocol that they use in their intensive care unit that they published on and show that if we pick the right devices for the right patients, we can streamline care, we can get them better quicker, and we can save money. Um, but if you're not reading Respiratory Care Journal, uh, you'll miss that article that comes out if you're not looking for it. And understand that the people that are moving your profession forward are those volunteering and working at the national office and through your state society. So get involved with those societies. It's mostly volunteer, but it's what's going to help move things forward. So if you're complaining that you want people to respect you more and let you do more, you have to help make it happen because um, wishing and hoping and praying makes up. With that, do you think like doing quality improvement projects within your organization and seeing those minor pluses help someone get on the path? Absolutely. Particularly because the quality improvement processes help make greater change quicker than research will. But you're going to you'll see. Um, where some of your limitations are, but you you meet the right people that help to make those changes happen and you can learn the processes. You know, when you get to that project that doesn't have enough evidence to kind of move things forward, that's where you can see where all the lack is in, in our research evidence and then help to build the support to make research projects go forward and find mentors in everything. You don't need to figure it out on your own. Um, in most cases, somebody has already done something. So read the article of the people that already did it and call them. Every, every research article has a corresponding author with an email listed on it. Um, send them an email, ask them questions. Chances are they're very willing to help and they're happy that you read it and are helping to implement what they did in your hospital. So just, just reach out. Don't wait for people to come to you. Yes. And I I know that is 100% true because when I was doing my doctorate of health sciences, I found a research article that I was like, okay, I want to adapt their little survey. It was already vetted. And all I did was shoot them an email. It was a group of researchers out of Turkey. And they just, all I had, I just, hey, I'm working on this. Can I adapt your, your survey? And they just said, yeah, no problem. Good luck. So I think that people get intimidated for reaching out to people they don't know. But I think in this world, we're just wanting to help each other. And everybody's excited if you actually read their work. 
Yes, definitely. You know, it makes it a little bit worth it. Well, Natalie, I really appreciate your time today. I hope that this inspires somebody to either get involved with a change project within their organization, or if this is the type of position that someone is like now, like, oh my God, that sounds amazing. They can take those steps to get prepared and network, 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 network with the people that you need to and get a hold of those doctors making research and getting involved. Yes, great. Thank you for inviting me. No problem.